right. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. That was wonderful. Thank you, Emily, for sharing that opportunity. Please make sure you grab a flyer. You can grab one now or on your way out. We're really excited to partner with, with Goshen Valley. Thank you, David and Emily, for uh, helping connect us with them. Um, we're really excited to partner with that ministry over the next few weeks this holiday season. Okay, if you have a copy of God's Word, turn really to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is going to be the last week in our series on the body of Christ. We've spent a short time looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, asking what does it mean to live together as the body of Christ? Uh, next week, we're going to start a four-week series in the book of Ruth that I'm very excited about, building towards Christmas. And so I'm really excited to look at the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Uh, and so join us this Christmas season as we walk through that book in the Old Testament. Before this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, as is our practice here, I'm going to read it because uh, it's, God it's God's word and it's good for us. And so I'm going to read the entire chapter starting in verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played in the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It's written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues then is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is not 
for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he's convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subjected to the prophets since God is not a God of disorder but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. The women should be silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak but are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home since it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originally originate from you, or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. God, this is your word, and we know that it is good. Please give us understanding. Give us spiritual revelation and wisdom from this word to help us live with you and with one another in love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's some fun things in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I thought about giving this to our two brand new elders and just saying, go have fun and tell me what you think about prophecy and tongues and apparently women should be silent in the church. Um, no, I did not think about doing that at all. I, 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 I wouldn't wanna do that. But what I hope to do in the sermon this morning is to model how to approach a difficult text. We will all come to places in scripture that as we read, we bristle. Ugh, did you have to say it like that, God? That doesn't hit me well, that's not gonna hit the culture well, I don't know if that's gonna be received well. We might come to things in scripture and we simply don't know what it means at all. How do we approach those kinds of passages? Should we always read a passage and be able to come to some full and final sense of this is exactly what it means and this is exactly how to live it out? Is that to be expected of every passage we read in scripture? What about the ones that are extremely difficult? What about the ones that seem to contradict other passages? What do we do? What do we do with these difficult passages of scripture? I think it's sort of like building a home. And I'm gonna use this analogy sort of throughout the message this morning because every home starts with the same sort of things. Regardless of what the end product looks like, every home begins with some similar things. You've gotta have a foundation. You've got to be able to, uh, they're building a new little development near my house and they've spent, it seemed like they cleared the trees very quick and now they've spent months laying piping and drainage and uh, 
uh, a retention pond for the water, but then also uh, plumbing that they're going to plumb into the sewage system that runs on the road. You've got to get all that stuff figured out. Then, then you lay the foundation, and then the framing goes up. Now, when a home's finished, you don't see any of that. All that's underground, and it's inside the walls that have been sanded and blended together and painted with molding and trim. You've put the flooring down that you chose. When you build a home, you don't meet with the builder and say, I can't wait to discuss my framing options. The builder says, this is the frame you're getting. This is the one we're building. But you might meet with the builder to discuss your cabinetry, to discuss the paint, maybe even discuss the layout a little bit. Is it, you want the living room like this? You want the island like this? Or do you want a peninsula coming off the wall? But when you build a house, there's some things that every home has to have. You gotta have the foundation, you gotta have the framing. But then at the end, that's not what you see. These things, I think, are also true of churches. There's some things that every church ought to have. And I think in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is very clear about some things. There are other things I think in 1 Corinthians 14 are very unclear. And it's because we don't understand what was happening in the church in Corinth. And I think it's a bit like our analogy of a home. There are some things that every church has. There's some foundational and framing things that every church ought to have. But then once the church is built, you could go to three different churches this morning around town and have three very different experiences. And it's because once the foundation is laid and once the framing is built, the inside and the way they decorate might look a little different, but if I take my toddler to three different houses and I point and I say, what is that? I think she's still gonna go house, house, and house. And I think what Paul wants us to take and what the Holy Spirit wants us to take from 1 Corinthians 14 is regardless of how you arrange the furniture, how you paint and what flooring you have, regardless of how you arrange the details on the inside, we should be able to say, church, church, church. But there's going to be a range of faithfulness within what biblical churches look like. There is not one right way to do it. And sometimes those are the most difficult passages to come to when there's not just one right answer. So let's dive in and let's begin where I think we should all begin when we come to a difficult passages, what is clear? Don't start with the confusing and move to the clear. Start with what's clear. Start with what's obvious, and let's build on that. So when we come to this passage and we ask what's clear, I think we see three very clear things. And the first is that there is a rhythm of gathering. Now that kind of runs underneath the passage and is very assumed. Because Paul never comes right out and says, make sure you're gathering regularly. But the passage makes no sense if the church is not gathering regularly. We see it here, but we also see it in other places of Scripture. Think about Acts chapter 2. The very beginning of the Spirit lights the flame, the church is born. Acts 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their foods with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I think 
sometimes we might forget the base level assumption that a church is certainly more than a gathering, but it can never be less. We put a great emphasis here at Shalford that the church is the people, and I believe that. But if the people never gather, then I think we've missed something foundational to 1 Corinthians 14 and the New Testament as a whole. We think about Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I, re- I first learned this verse because I woke up uh, as a high schooler one Sunday morning. We had kind of all spent the night and hung out together, some friends, and we all went to church together, and we had a fairly large student ministry, and I was fairly involved. My parents were on staff at the church I went to, and I was very close with our youth pastor, and I had, I had started serving more and leading more and uh, counselor at, you know, the younger kids' camps, and he'd even, even given me the opportunity to preach a couple of times, and I wake up on the Sunday morning, and I was just thinking to myself, being a very action-minded teenager, and I thought, why are we even going to church? There's, there's stuff to go do out in the world. So I text my youth pastor, and I'm like, remind me why it's important that we even gather? And I'm sure he saw that, and he was like, oh, God. Okay. And he pulled this verse and sent it to me, and I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> there it is. You can't argue with that. Don't neglect gathering together because it provokes one another to love and good works. We could talk about Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, about how we need to be filled with the Spirit. And what does that look like? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. We're addressing one another. We're together as we're doing that. Or Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. It's kind of a mirror passage to Ephesians chapter five. So I think the first obvious clear thing is the church has a rhythm of gathering. But the next thing Paul talks about all throughout this passage is the purpose of gathering. Verse three, he talks about strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. And then he uses some form of builds up or built up in verses four, five, 12, 17, and 26. Over and over, he's talking about strive to build up the church. But we've got to pause and actually take a step back. Who, who is it that's built up? On the one hand, it's definitely the church because there are other believers in the gathering. But on the other hand, Paul also assumes that there are unbelievers present. Verses 24 and 25, the unbelievers apparently hear what's happening in the gathering And Paul assumes, expects, and hopes that they become convicted and begin to worship the one true God for themselves. He actually says they'll fall down to worship God and recognize God's presence among the gathering. So how is it that people are built up, whether believer or unbeliever in the gathering? How is it that unbelievers are convicted and end up worshiping God? How is it that believers are encouraged or strengthened? I think it's from what Paul hopes the response of the unbeliever is. He, he says that they might fall down and worship God and say, God is really among you. The purpose of the gathering is to celebrate and respond to the presence of God in our midst. And from that, we who follow the way of Jesus will be built up. 
and those of us who don't know Jesus yet, but are exploring who he is and want to hear teaching from scripture and have searched the world and found it wanting like we sang earlier, if God's really present here, I pray this would be a place that you'd experience who he really is. So the purpose of the gathering seems to be that believers are built up and unbelievers are led to Christ because of the special presence of God when we gather. God is present everywhere. There's nowhere, Psalm 139, high, low, east, west, that you can go from the presence of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You are the fulfillment of the temple. You have his presence in you. So there's two true theological truths there, okay? You got it? God's present everywhere. But then if you're a believer, God's present in you. But then when you gather with the church, there seems to be another special presence of God that fills the place God's people gather expressly to worship him. So the purpose of our gathering must be to celebrate God's presence and respond to his presence. So I wonder, do we have an expectation of meeting God when we gather? Not just learning more information, not just coming to serve and pour out, not coming to check a box or go through the motions or sing another song, but coming to say, God is in our midst. Do we want him here? Do we come ready to meet him when we gather? I think Paul's clear about this in this passage, that the, there's a rhythm of gathering, there's a purpose of gathering, but there's also an order of gathering. The order that Paul talks about serves the purpose. He's careful throughout this passage to say that the gathering needs to happen with some sense of order because where there is no order, there's no upbuilding. Because upbuilding can only happen if we understand what's happening. We'll talk about tongues in just a minute, but Paul says that if they can't be interpreted, they shouldn't be spoken because it won't be intelligible and therefore it won't be upbuilding to the ones who hear it. If the things happening in our gathering don't have order, if it's not intelligible or understandable or organized, then it won't fulfill its purpose. So why does Paul need to call for order? Well, obviously, one of the things we've seen in 1 Corinthians 12 is that there's a diversity of gifts. There's a diversity of people all present, all apparently being displayed for the good of others. So Paul says it's important to take turns, or as verse 31 says, go one by one. And then when you go one by one, don't take too long. Verse 26 says it like this, whenever you come together, each one has him, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So one thing I thought about was all the good work that Will does to get feedback on music, which is more than any worship leader that I feel like I've ever served with. He gets feedback on music. What do you like? What do you listen to? He's fulfilling, I think, what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. Each one has a song. You got a song? Come bring it to our song, man. Right? We want to have people participating in the gathering with a sense of order. This is not to be chaos when we gather, where we just come and we just let it fly and we have no order, no plan. There are many people that go into building a plan so that there is order when we gather. I think those three things from this passage are very clear. There's a rhythm of gathering, there's a purpose of gathering, and there's an order of gathering. Now, the elements of gathering are where Paul begins to say things that might rub us the wrong way, 
things we might not understand, things we might have heard teaching on that we thought, I don't know if that's right, or maybe things that we've just outright neglected. We've seen the foundation and the framework of the house of the church, the essentials, the things that Paul's very clear about, but now there's, there are some things in this passage that have what I'll call a range of faithfulness. There's a range of faithfulness that if you go to solid, biblical, gospel-believing churches, they practice these things differently. And that's what I mean. When we come to difficult passages, can we with humility hold with an open hand and say, I think we land somewhere in this area, but there are other churches that love Jesus that fall over here. And that's okay. There are some things in Scripture that we read that are just unclear. They're not discussed often, maybe, and they'll show up in just a couple of passages. I mean, think about all the places Paul doesn't talk about prophecy or tongues. That's a lot. He did not include this in most of his writings. So obviously, Paul didn't take it as something essential, and if you miss this, you miss the whole point and thrust of the gospel. He seemed to be addressing some sort of problem in the Corinthian church, and there's a big gap between what happened there in the first century and our understanding today of what their problem was. We don't have all of those answers. So we're going to look at some of these things together. The first one is prophecy. What is prophecy? Paul talks about it all throughout this chapter. And maybe, uh, like me, your first connection when you hear that word takes you back to the Old Testament. Well, they were Old Testament prophets, right? Yes, but the New Testament practice of prophecy seems to be very different. A New Testament prophet was not held in such a position of authority as an Old Testament prophet was. It seemed to be more of an office in the Old Testament where someone was called by God to be a prophet and if they were unfaithful, they were to be killed because they were to be found misrepresenting God. The New Testament takes a different path for that because everyone is now filled with the Spirit. So we learn from the book of Joel in the Old Testament and then Peter's quotation of Joel in Acts chapter two that, quote, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people, then your sons and daughters will prophesy. So what do we learn from 1 Corinthians 14 about prophecy? Well, the person who prophesies speaks in mysteries of the spirit is what verse three says. Verse four says they build up the church. Verse five says the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Verse 22 says prophecy is for believers. It builds up believers. But then verses 24 and 25 seem to say prophecy also has value for unbelievers. Verse 31 says prophecy leads to learning and encouragement. Verse three says it strengthens, encourages, and consoles. And verse one says we should be eager to prophesy. To Zoom out a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 to 21 says, Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. So what is prophecy? Here's how I will define prophecy. It's bringing God's word and will to bear on a particular people in a particular place. I think this is in addition to the common regulatory word of God that we have. And here, here's one example I'll take us to in scripture to show you this definition. Bringing God's word and will to bear on a particular people in a particular place. So it's bringing God's will to apply it to a people. So Acts chapter 13. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. 
Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. This seems to be an example of prophecy. Paul says some of these were prophets, had the spiritual gift of prophecy. This is taking God's will and communicating it to a people. Hey, we, we have God's general will right here. But nowhere in here does it say, before the book of Acts was written, Paul should go here. We don't have individualized, personalized instruction like that. And God seems to use in the New Testament his followers filled with his spirit to communicate his will to other followers. So I think prophecy is, is bringing the word and will of God to bear on a particular people in a particular place. And I think we see that in Acts chapter 13. But I think D.A. Carson has a very timely quote here. One begins to suspect then that prophecy may occur more often than is recognized in non-charismatic circles and less often than is recognized in charismatic circles. Translation, if you come from a charismatic background, everything you heard might not have been prophecy. There might have been an overemphasis on prophesying and being prophetic. But if you come from a background like me that is generally non-charismatic, more prophecy probably happened than you gave credit for. When have we had an impression, a spirit-prompted thought or a question or an application of a passage or some sense of, of leadership that came outside of us to say something to someone, some encouragement, some passage of scripture that I need to text this to you, I need to say this to you, I need to encourage you in this way, I need to say, I think God's doing this in your life. When have we had that? I think the New Testament calls that prophecy whether we want to or not. Now there's obviously a, a range of faithfulness here. Some churches have a microphone like this and it's open for prophecy. For people to come up at any time and begin to speak in it. Now some churches just ignore prophecy and say, oh, we're not gonna talk about it. Some churches might have something like this and then they say, hey, if you have a word, we don't wanna just have chaos of people just coming up and speaking at any time, interrupting what's going on. Uh, come and talk to an elder and share, hey, this is a word from the Lord I'd like to share and I'd like to encourage the congregation. A, a, a word. Okay, we'll have a time for that. There's a range of faithfulness, but I don't think, if you read how highly Paul places prophecy in this passage, it is something that is very important and it's something that happens outside of this gathering among us all the time. As we follow Jesus, and bring his word and will to bear on the lives of each other through encouragement and rebuke and challenge and exhortation and invitation and prayer, through texts and phone calls, through coffees, lunches, breakfasts, community groups and Bible studies. We practice this all the time. Now, it's only gonna get more difficult. We're gonna talk about tongues. In Acts chapter two, it seems as though tongues refer to languages miraculously spoken and understood by people who didn't share this common language, okay? So one argument against the modern day practice of tongues is, well, we don't need that anymore. We have people that speak these different languages, and isn't that all it is? It's speaking different languages. Well, let's see the way Paul describes tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. In verses two and 14, Paul says, 
It is prayer directed to God. In verse four, he says it personally edifies the one who's speaking. It builds up the one who's speaking in tongues. In verse six and then verses 27 and 28, we also learn that speaking in tongues does not always build up. But then in verses 13 and also in 27 and 28, speaking in tongues can build up others. Now, here's where it gets, I think, challenging the extremes. In verse 39, speaking in tongues should not be forbidden. And then, based on chapter 12, speaking in tongues should also not be required. Now, here's where I think that sort of lops off and builds our range of faithfulness. <clears throat> there are some traditions, denominations, and churches that say, Speaking in tongues is a necessary sign to show that you have been saved. Hear me very clearly. That is a false teaching that is adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is false. We will never practice such a thing. There are churches who also say we should never speak in tongues. I won't go as far as to condemn that. However, based on Paul's language here, don't forbid it. I find it quite difficult to find anywhere in the New Testament where I should actually not believe Paul and begin to forbid it. So Andrew Wilson is a, a pastor and a writer in the UK, and, and he gives five helpful categories on how, to, how do we approach the issue of tongues. Well, on the one hand, we can ban them. They're not allowed. We will make public statements to the effect that we're asking everyone to never speak in tongues. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we can insist upon them. We can ask everyone to speak in tongues, and we, have to, we say everyone has to do it. But within those two extremes, which I think options one and five are ruled out from Scripture, there's everything from we can allow them officially but discourage them. Hey, technically the Scriptures say they happen, but actually we, we, we should be very cautious here. We can allow them, and then we can not discourage or encourage them. Over time, this is probably going to mean they don't happen very often. Or we can actively encourage them by including our expectation for them in our biblical teaching and in our leadership of meetings. Again, I think the, the first couple options of banning them and insisting on them, I just think they're ruled out from Scripture. We can't ban them based on verse 39, and we shouldn't require them based on 1 Corinthians 12. It seems to be a gift. And there are churches that seem to do both. But practically at Shalford, we've simply not talked about it. We, we've simply done nothing with this issue of tongues. I know there are people in our church who have been in churches that have encouraged tongues. And I know there are some of us that have been in churches that have discouraged or ignored tongues. Again, there's a range of faithfulness on this issue. If God, here's my encouragement to you now. If God's given you the gift of tongues then be as Paul and pray in tongues. Paul says it spiritually edifies you. It builds you up. Paul says, I pray in tongues more than all of you. Pray. If God has given you a spiritual gift to be able to pray in a language that you do not understand, then in your personal private prayer life, I want to encourage you to use that. As it lifts you into the presence of God in a mysterious and miraculous way, God will give you guidance. I unfortunately cannot. I was talking with someone this week. I was like, how can I give guidance on something I, I don't feel that I'm gifted in at this particular time in my life? 
and, and I came to rest on, this is a spiritual gift, God will give you guidance. Because this seems to be something that's not only practiced in the gathering, but it can be practiced in private. Paul encourages as much. So if that's you, don't be ashamed. Don't try to stifle it. Lean into what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. And I pray that as that happens, God may give you intelligible interpretation along with it so that you can be encouraged in your wisdom, not just in your practice of the presence of God. If God has given you the gift of tongues and you feel like it should be utilized in the gathering, what I would ask you to do is, after I preach and while we're practicing the Lord's Supper every single week, you can come and talk to me. You can say, Johnny, I believe that I, I need to speak in tongues to the gathering. I believe this is something I need to do. You can come and talk to me or any one of our elders. Now, we will not allow you to speak in tongues without an interpretation because Paul is very clear on the unhelpfulness of that. But if God really has given a tongue, he will also give an interpretation and we will do our best to find a match of those. And you say, how's it gonna look in practice? I've got no idea. This is my best effort to be faithful to God's word and the practice of our church. And I don't want to stifle a spiritual gift that God is giving one of us. But I also want to be cautious that we know for certain Paul wants order in the gathering. So I, again, there's a range of faithfulness. We may never, there may be all of us in this room, we may never pray in a tongue. We may never hear it in this gathering and hear an interpretation with it. And we will be faithful followers of Jesus. And God could blow all of our minds and categories and bring it to us in this service, and we will be faithful followers of Jesus. Now, the last thing in this passage that is very confusing is when Paul tells the women to be silent. Now, if we could have given a more clear hint on where exactly we fall on this, I don't know how we could have, as Emily was just up here talking not being very silent as she talked. These are interesting words on women in the church. And this is another unclear section because Paul does not talk about this in all of his letters. There doesn't seem to be a general application of the principle Paul's talking about. On the one hand, some churches take this and say, women can never do anything in the church. They must always be quiet and stay out of the way. On the other hand, some scholars and churches take these verses and they say, this was a late addition to the letter. Someone wanted to put this in who had an agenda. This isn't from Paul. We can take these verses and throw them out. As I've studied this text, and I think as we could all agree, both of those views seem to be outside the bounds of faithfulness to God's word. What do we know clearly? Well, first of all, if you rewind a couple of chapters to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul explicitly refers to women praying and prophesying in the gathering. So, Whatever Paul means in 1 Corinthians 14, he does not mean that women are not speaking in the gathering. Because that would contradict everything. So we say, so what do we do with these verses that say be silent and don't speak? We know clearly 1 Corinthians 11 says they're praying and prophesying. We also know in this passage, and I think this is very important, this is not the only place in 1 Corinthians 14 the verb to be silent is used. So we also know that others in the gathering are asked to be silent. 
Now, if they're asked to be silent, does that mean always and forever in every gathering and every circumstance they're to be silent? I, I don't think so. I think Paul's trying to preserve order. So why would Paul say these things? I think he's getting to the end of 1 Corinthians 14 very practical. And there are things we do and do not know about how the church in Corinth practiced corporate worship. They did not uh, preserve their planning center order of service files to be passed down for the next 2,000 years for us to see, you know, three minutes transitional prayer, Apostle Paulos, you know, and then Paul is giving a seven-minute prophecy. We, We don't have that. But there seems to be a lot of things in 1 and 2 Corinthians that Paul is writing that are culturally sensitive to the difficulties in that particular church. He seems to be responding to issues that they had, and even in some cases, responding to issues they brought up in a letter they wrote to him. So in this section, that's why Paul's getting so practical. Where else do we see Paul say, look, you guys do this, but only two or three of you, and make sure you go one at a time. And, and then you guys, okay, do this, but only if this is gonna happen, and, and, and only two, one or two of you. He's being very practical as he comes to the end of 1 Corinthians 14. There's apparently been some disorder in the church's corporate worship, and we do not know what it is. There seems to be some disorder, even particularly related to the women who were a part of the church, and we do not know what that disorder is. There could have been disruptions in the gathering, side conversations where people didn't understand. There, would, there might have been language and educational barriers between women and men in the first century, and women were trying to understand what was happening, and they were saying, could you explain this to me? And that was disrupting the gathering as all that was happening. Uh, Another view, and this seems quite likely to me, a husband and wife might find themselves on different sides of an issue that's presented in some form of prophecy. Someone says something and a husband might say, I don't know if I agree with that. And the wife might go, oh yeah, this is God. And Paul very well may be trying to preserve marital unity by saying, do not get into some sort of disagreement in the corporate gathering. Take that home. Go home, love one another, get unified, and then come back. And that seems quite likely because Paul, we know, has a high view of marriage and a high view of the unity of a man and a wife. So it might make sense. He says, look, if we've got these questions and disputes in the gathering, don't stand up in front of the church and let a wife say to her husband, I disagree with you on this. That's not gonna be holding marriage in any sort of high esteem. The point, though, is that we don't know exactly what was happening, but we do know that women are not to be silent and quiet in the gathering of believers. And I hope as we've come to a passage with lots of question marks, lots of things we may never have the answer to, we can approach this with humility but also confidence, asking how does God want this passage, this chapter to speak to me, to our community? What are the things we're meant to take away from this? And I think some of those are that we gather for the purpose of experiencing God's presence and building others up. That's the purpose of gathering experiencing God's presence and building others up. We do that with order. We do that by exercising spiritual gifts. Be encouraged in that. And I find myself walking away from this passage wondering, how will we pursue the presence of God together? What will that look like for us at Shaliford? 
Do we recognize the presence of God with us right now? Are we caught up in his presence like we just sang? I think that's what this passage is asking us. uh, Very specific instructions to one church in one place at one time. And we're meant to pull out of that some general principles that can apply to churches all over the world. It's no easy task. Don't feel like way. Scripture's meant to be read for a lifetime and there's gonna be many things we never get answered on this side of eternity. But one thing we can know for sure is that we are to gather as God's people to build each other up and experience his presence. Let's pray.